like as a doctor, if you feel like you don't have tools to help, like what are you supposed to do? So a lot of doctors, I think, just shut down, right? And so I think even like bringing psychedelics to healthcare workers would be like a lot. There would be a huge ripple effect, right? Because they would start realizing like they need to treat themselves better so they can treat their patients better. Welcome to Going Within, the podcast where I, David Naylor, and our guests dive deep, sharing our transformative journeys with psychedelic therapy and other awakening experiences. As the founder of Within, a psychedelic assisted therapy clinic in Austin, Texas, I'm dedicated to helping others find profound healing and consciousness expansion using ketamine in a ceremonial approach. Join us as we explore the life-changing potential of going within and listening to inspiring stories of transformation from various life experiences and ceremonies. Thank you for honoring me with your presence and attention today, and I'm so grateful that you're here in all of your infinite wisdom. Now, let's go within. Dr. Jazdeep Sandhu is a board-certified psychiatrist specializing in integrative psychiatry. With the belief that we each create our own medicine, she takes a holistic approach to mental health, considering various factors that influence well-being. Dr. Sandhu completed her residency at the ICANN School of Medicine of Mount Sinai. She also holds a Master's of Public Health. I can honestly tell you through interviewing Dr. Jazdeep, She is one of the most pioneering doctors that I have ever met, blazing a trail of psychedelic medicine and healing and creating a new world of mental health. Hello. Hi, David. The one and only Dr. Jazdeep Sandhu. Wow. Thank you for taking the time to come on this, whatever this is. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I was really excited when you asked me. Yeah, absolutely. So on this show, we talk about like, what is it like to go within? Because our whole lives, we've been taught to go to school, perform. And then it's to get a job and to make money, to be successful, have children, get married. Like it's all external. Mm -hmm. And there's a place for that, right? Because we get to live in this duality world. But there's not much that's talked about, like going within. So, you know, I I like to just kind of jump right in and ask like, you know, what's what's your story been like? Like when was in your life where you learned to go within? Mm. Because I know that you're very successful in your career and your practice. You have a lot of accolades, achievements. Um, when was it that, you know, when was it realized for you to be important to go within? I would say um, I probably didn't think of it that way. But when I was in medical school, I was dealing with a lot of things personally and with my family. And medical school was very rigorous, as uh-huh. you would imagine. Yeah. Um, and I was pretty angry or people would tell me I was angry. And like people who know me now are like, you're super calm and chill. But apparently I was very angry. And so I was like, I need to do something and like create more discipline in my life. And so I started a yoga practice um, when I was in medical school. And I would just start with like five minutes a day. And then it was like 10 minutes a day. And then it was more and more. And I stuck with it every day because I needed something to like slow me down and help me basically go inside. Um, And like, I received so much from that practice and that's why I still practice today. And it's like a different discipline. Like obviously I had discipline to like go through medical school and residency and like give up my twenties and like become a doctor, but discipline to be with yourself is very different. Um, So that's probably like where that seed got planted of like, you need to start like paying attention to what's happening inside. I want to dial that back a little bit. Like you have the discipline to go through medical school, to work hard, to have these achievements. Obviously you have to have a crazy amount of discipline. Mm-hmm. Did you find it to have a, was it easier for you to go with it and make that practice because you had discipline already? No, externally? it's easier to do things externally, I think. How so? 
because you get feedback from other people, right? And it's like the path that looks like that's what you're supposed to be on. But、mm. when you go inside, there's no path, right?、Mm. You're like creating it as you go along, and there's no like blueprint, and so you just have to explore. Versus like school was easy for me. Like school was like an afterthought. Like, Because there's a roadmap. There's a roadmap, but I like my brain works that way, right? Like I can read, I can study, I can memorize. It wasn't an issue, and it was like four years of college, four years of medical school, four years of residency. It was like all mapped out, so I knew where I was going the whole time. But then internally, I was like a mess. <laughs> so I had to figure out a different way to like address that. And what was that different way? Let's talk about this mess because you certainly don't look like a mess in、oh, your life. A mess, yeah.、Um, I mean, how, how much do you want to know、We're, about how got, messy I was? We got plenty of time for this. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I wasn't taking very good care of my health, as like most doctors、mm-hmm. are. That's sadly like the truth is we're so focused on taking care of others,、mm. and they don't really teach us the right way to take care of others. Right? We teach people how to like take care of sick people. And so we don't take care of ourselves until we're sick.、Mm. And so I was struggling with a lot of just health issues through medical school and residency, and didn't even like realize it's because I wasn't taking care of myself. I just thought, oh, I'm not trying hard enough, or it's because this is the way it's supposed to be. Like this is what's taught to you in residency. Like don't sleep, don't eat, just like keep going and like keep pouring your heart out into your work. So I mean that will make you make other poor decisions, right? I mean I was living in New York, so if I wasn't working, I was partying, and like that was the life I had. Um, and to me, I was like, "Well, that's balance, right?、Mm-hmm. Like, if I'm going to work two weeks in a row without a break, that one day I have off, I'm going to like go play." So that probably wasn't like the best way to do things. I mean, at the same time, I still was like working out and practicing yoga, but I didn't have that solid like. And now I'm going to meditate, and now I'm going to sit, and now I'm going to like listen to my body. Like I wasn't listening to my body, so. That yeah, I, I didn't really make some of the best decisions. I mean, I got out of New York alive, so to speak. But it wasn't until like after residency that I realized like, oh, I need to pay attention more to what's happening.、Um, and like, I was in a not good relationship, and I had to like get out of that. And then I moved to Austin, and things like finally settled down a little bit. And I was like, oh, I can like breathe and like reassess what, what I'm doing. So what it, this is fascinating because I imagine so many people out there are in the similar place, right?、Mm. They're they're working hard. They're they're not taking care of their health, right? I know I've been there. I know everyone who's gone within. Usually, a crisis creates change, right? So, what was your crisis, so to speak? Was it the relationship change? Was it your health? Was it both? Was it like what what had you really say? Okay, I'm ready to go. It was so many things. So my dad, who passed away a few years ago, he had、mm-hmm. a chronic illness, and he was sick for like ten years before he died.、Mm-hmm. And so that was like always in the background. Like dad's not doing well. Dad's not doing well.、Mm-hmm. And I think some of my family like thought he was going to get better, but I was a doctor, and I was like, he's not going to get better. Like he's going to he's going to pass away. And so that was like in the background of all everything. And I was like away from home so much because I was at school. So that was going on. My like sister's mental health was not well. I was struggling with the eating disorder. Like everything was like a mess. And then I was in this like not good relationship. So lots of stuff was piling on. Wow. And at the same time, everybody's like, "Oh, you're a doctor. That's so great. You're so good at what you do. Like on the outside, you look so happy and da da da. Like you're living in New York and da da." And I'm like, "Yeah, things are great." If you only knew. Yeah. And so everything was kind of spiraling. Um, and then in Atlanta, it was COVID, and then COVID kind of shut everything down. Which is when I finally started meditating because I think I was like trapped and I had nothing to do and nowhere to run. That I was like, I need to sit down and like actually listen. So that was the first time I really started like listening. And there was a lot of emotions coming up. 
And so I didn't really know what to do with that, right? And like, I didn't have really a supportive partner and I was alone in Atlanta. And so then I was like, I need to leave. And so then I came here and that's when I was like, okay, I can sit, I can listen, I can breathe. Um, and then I had an ayahuasca journey that was very transformative, but it's sort of like everything lined up where all these like terrible things were happening. And I was like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And then I came here and I was like, you know what? It's not okay. I need to do something else. Well, first of all, you said something that just stuck out to me. More, I'm hearing more and more being in the medical field, there, there are more and, do, more and more doctors now starting to sit with plant medicine. Mm-hmm. But you have been a pioneer of this because you mentioned a few years ago you just sat with ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like for you? So it was interesting. The way I got into it is not necessarily the way I would recommend people <laughs> get into it because I really didn't know very much about psychedelics. Like in, in residency, all we're taught is like LSD causes like persistent hallucinations right. and like don't do this because you'll go like you'll become psychotic and um and so there was like no therapeutic potential to them supposedly right and so that's what I always thought or I thought they were like bad um but then I moved here and I was going to go on this like yoga retreat and at the bottom of this email it was like there's an option for ayahuasca and I was like I'll do that (laughs) and so I think it just like lined up like that's what I was supposed to be doing and so I go to Guatemala and like it was this beautiful retreat, very well mm. run, like really solid people there, a lot of like good preparation work. And yeah, I sat and it was, you know, the, the things you think are going to come out of it are not what comes out of it. Like I thought I was going to work on grief and my relationship and like all these other things. And it was like a totally different journey, but it ended up being so helpful. And because of that, I was like, oh, I have to figure out how to bring this to people in the States, like in a legal way. Mm. Um but yeah, that was, it was amazing. That's, that's, yeah. Having had sat with ayahuasca myself, I know how transformative it can be. It can take us to places that we haven't looked. Places, patterns, behaviors, pains, griefs. Yeah. Even, even things that, you know, where our life can be, mm-hmm. right, that we don't see. So it can be very transformative. Yeah, agreed. So you moved to Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. And all those things were weighing on you kind of caved then you did ayahuasca Mm -hmm. tell us about like your journey going within and what it's been like over the last couple of years yeah I mean I think like you said it just opened up my eyes to a lot more right and I always like tell patients this too like you can know something but unless you like feel it it's Uh not really gonna Uh there's not gonna be change made and so I think that's what happened for me it's like all these things were stirring and then I was like facing them all and you can't like escape it and it's not a cognitive thing right there's no words it's just this experience and so I was like flooded with all these images of like me as a kid or me and my mom like a lot of maternal fetal stuff was coming up and it was like Mm -hmm. totally unexpected and yeah and like a lot of stuff about my body and like how to take care of myself and I was like oh, like, I get it. Like, I just came out of that. And I was like, what am I doing? Like, why am I not taking care of myself? And that kind of helped sort of push me into this more role of like, okay, I can take care of myself and then I'll be an even better doctor because I was already doing pretty well, but it was different, right? I, I, I was coming, I was lacking and then I was trying to give. And now I'm trying to like make sure my own cup is full and then give, right? And it has a different feel to it. And I think people can tell the difference, right? I think at points in Atlanta, some of my patients probably were like, are you all right, Dr. Sandu? And I'd be like, I'm fine. Like, no, no, no. But, you know, it's because I was not really doing fine, but I was trying to give so much. Well, I can't imagine this uh, New York uh, work hard, play hard, 
party doctor because I follow you on Instagram and it's like you're at yoga, you're having tea with friends, you're in nature walks, you're like in meditation poses and I'm like, okay, here's a light channel. Yeah. I mean, I was doing that stuff in New York too. I was just doing a lot of other stuff (laughs) on the side, right? And so now again, I don't do that as much here. Wow. Yeah, your priorities shift. So Tell us, um, you know, Tell us about like your practice now. Like, how is it different than your practice before? Like, walk us through a normal day in the life of Dr. Jazdeep. Okay, so I see patients virtually and in person, and I would say like surprisingly, it works pretty well. I was always afraid there'd be like this disconnect, and when COVID happened, it was definitely very difficult because I'm such like an in-person person. Like, mm-hmm. I totally read off people's energy mm-hmm. and like. I feel like part of what's therapeutic is to like have that energy in the room. And so I felt like I was working so much harder virtually, but it gave a lot of people access to care, which was important. Mm-hmm. And so I kept that in my model because I think that's important because not everybody can come in person. And I see people all over the country, like in New York and Atlanta and in Texas. Um, but yeah, I have patients who are coming to me and they've like never seen a psychiatrist and they kind of just want more understanding of their own like inner world Mm -hmm. um some people have like seen 10 psychiatrists and then they need just a very different approach and they're like i don't want to be on all these meds this person doesn't listen to me they've like never once asked me about what i eat or anything like Mm -hmm. that and so i offer a very different approach in that sense and like i talk to people about like meaning like what gives them meaning in their Mm -hmm. life instead of like what's wrong with them Um, Because I think a lot of times people focus on like, well, this isn't going well, this isn't going well, this, like, I need to know that, but I also Mm want to know like what lights you up, like what are you good at, right? Like what are you drawn towards? And a lot of times the first time I ask somebody that in a session, like what do you want? They're like, I don't know. Like they never ask themselves that. And so even creating a space where they can actually explore like what do they want, what do they need um, is very helpful. So that's, that's how I work with patients. And then I have some patients I see for therapy and I've seen them for years and years and what's interesting about those patients is now that I've seen them for so long and I've started private practice and they're sticking with me, like now they're interested in ketamine. And so it's like taking our relationship to like a whole other level. Yeah. And so I've had patients who I've like been in therapy for years with and like they did ketamine with me. Well, they sat for ketamine when I was there and um, they were like, this is insane. Like everything we've talked about in like the past three years, it's like, I get it. Yeah. Sometimes five, 10 years of therapy in one session. Yeah. But the thing is like they do all the work, right? And I'm a bit stringent about how I accept people for ketamine. Like I do want them to have like proper preparation and like support. Yeah. Support. Have a therapist. Like, do you have a meditation? Do you have a practice of going inside before you just get shot inside? Because I think people don't realize that they think, oh, it's just going to be this like magical thing that helps me feel better. And it's like it can, but it's a lot more useful if you've done a lot of the legwork. So I see some patients for ketamine in person. I work with a lot of therapists um, just because it would be impossible for me to see everybody who wants to do ketamine. So I work with really good therapists. Um, And then, yeah, my my just integrative psychiatry practice with people who may not ever want to do psychedelics, but they know I'm there if they want it is kind Mm -hmm. of helpful for them too it's amazing because when you when i first met you and i found out you were a doctor i i was like wait 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 it just scrambled my brain Mm -hmm. because my whole life and i think a lot of us can relate to this and that is as a kid going to a doctor the doctor's in his coat not very not very personable Mm -hmm. you know um what's wrong looking for what's wrong like you said and then even having gone through psychiatrists in my own life going through my own healing journey of mental health and uh going through my transition states of consciousness Mm -hmm. that i like to call them um 
but like just the, I just remember psychiatrists being like with the pad and, uh, yep. Okay. And like, and just not very personable. So yeah. the fact that you can bring that you ask them, what kind of life do you envision? What do you want? Like, let's, let's drop in. Let's let, like, you're helping them he- like find the healing within themselves. Yeah. It's really uh, extraordinary. Thank you. But I think the other thing is like, people have to come to you and want to do it, right? Like, mm. I'm not just out there being like, who wants who wants some psychiatric services, right? I so thought they, I saw you on the corner <laughs> up there with a the little sign. But right it now. makes a big difference, right? Because, like, I can't plant that seed for somebody. They kind of have to, like, yeah. have the idea that they mm-hmm. want to get help. And then sometimes they get scared. Like, sometimes yeah. people come to me and then they're like, this is a lot. Like, I'm not ready to look yeah. at this stuff. And I'm like, okay, we'll work on some other things. And when you, well, want, to, when you want to look deeper, let me know. I think that's you and I have become friends because we share a similar vision and mission, right? right? Like here at the Within Center, like we have pre-integration, mm-hmm. post-integration. We're checking the blood work, mm-hmm. right? We have gut health, microbiome as part of the program. We don't just sell ketamine sessions, yeah, one-offs. We don't. Yeah. Like, I know a lot of clinics do, but it's like we're not just going to be that clinic, right? Yeah. You're going to come in. You're going to have a guide. You're going to have a therapist. You're going to have gut health, doctor. You're going to look at the whole picture. And if you need a retreat to live and immerse and have yeah. coaches and support, we have fitness classes every day to go yeah. to fitness. And then we have our classes here for community and integration. I think we're just trying to build that container. Yeah, that's So people amazing. have a container. That's like the right way to do it. That's like the ideal is to do it that way, to have all those pieces built in, right? Yeah. And so I'm like a one-woman show doing that. And you're like a big clinic doing that. And well, it, that's amazing, well. right? You know, I, I know that that anybody that I know has who has seen you has said nothing but amazing things because they yeah. get a person, not just a doctor. Yeah. They get a real person. Yeah, but it also requires you. Like I had to break away from convention, right? Yeah. Like this is not where most of psychiatry is, unfortunately, and so. And like a lot of my colleagues I went to residency with, like we all have such different practice models and mm-hmm. I like totally respect them because I've, mm-hmm. I've learned with them and grown with them and they're just different models. And they're like, I can't believe like you're doing this and you think this way and you do this. And I'm like, yeah, we all just like found our own path. And like, I respect what you do, but like you work in a hospital or like yeah. you, you, you're in like an insurance based clinic, like you have a different model to work with. Right. And so everybody can make an impact in their own way. You just kind of have to decide like, who do you want to see? Cause at the end of the day, right, training is not caught up, like, with what people need. Because my training was not, I mean, it made me a good doctor, like, you know, a quote-unquote good doctor. But everything I learned, like, after residency has been a lot more impactful. But you need that foundation because there's a lot of people out there who are good intention, but they don't know, like, how to not kill someone, yeah. <laughs> which is what medical yeah. training also yeah. teaches you. Yeah. So you kind of have to have both. Well, it's so clear to me that you had this training, 12 years of training, going through medical school, conventionally you're a part of that conventional consciousness but then your own crisis your own things in your life that had you go within to guatemala Mm -hmm. sit with ayahuasca sit with your medicine sit with yourself has now you have found this new purpose this new consciousness that you're now bringing clients into so here's my question where do you see psychiatry going where do you see mental health going do you see plant medicine um having a big role I think plant medicine has to have a big role given the situation we are in and the crisis people are facing um, because what we're doing right now isn't working. And a lot of that is because people are disconnected from themselves and from community and from other ways of healing. And so I think plant medicine is like a really beautiful way to bridge that. It makes people more connected to themselves, more connected to others, more connected Mm. to the world, right? And that's how you actually heal some of these like deeper issues, right? Because sometimes when people are like, I'm depressed or... I'm anxious. Yes, there's stuff going on in their life, but there's like a collective like anxiety and depression happening. And so 
plant medicine. I mean, that's the only thing I know that really gets people to see that, like within themselves and then outside of themselves. Like, how can they heal? I'm going to jump into this. You just said something that it has people feel connected. Mm-hmm. It has people feel belonging. Has people feel like t- tell us what's happening in the process when someone's on a ketamine journey, mm-hmm. plant medicine. How is that? What's happening for people to feel so connected and alive and, and kind of have that awakening process? What's yeah. happening? There's a lot of things happening. I would say most of it we don't know. We just make conjectures. But some of the yeah. things we know. So uh, one of the big ones that we hear about a lot, right, or you read in the literature is like it, it helps sort of quiet down your default mode network and helps your brain open up to more possibilities, essentially. So your default mode is what's happening when things are quiet, when you're not doing anything, kind of that background chatter. And for a lot of people, it's noisy and like not very helpful. And so with psychedelics, that totally gets disconnected. And so there's more room for new information, new ideas, new beliefs to kind of come through instead of whatever has been like playing on repeat in the background. So Mm. I tell people it's like ketamine essentially disconnects everything so you can reconnect to what's important. So in order to reconnect, right, you kind of have to disconnect what's not working. Um, So I explain it like that to people, but then also when you're on ketamine or any psychedelic, your brain is talking, like all the parts of your brain that don't usually talk get to talk, right? So you are getting more connected to all these parts of yourself that maybe you didn't have access to. But you have to be careful, right? Because sometimes your psyche blocks those parts off because they're painful, they're dangerous, right? And that's where that preparation work comes in because you can't just dive into something that your brain has done a really good job of protecting you from. And this is where the body keeps score. Mm -hmm. Trauma is in our body, Mm -hmm. right? So it's blocking us from some trauma, some pain. So in my experience, and and tell me if if you find this accurate, is that being through plant medicine ceremonies or, Mm -hmm. or ketamine therapy, it gave me access to feel these feelings that I haven't felt. And so my brain, since that default mode network was quiet, Mm -hmm. I couldn't really, it was, I had to process those emotions and those feelings. In fact, I got to process them. Is that accurate? Yeah, your your body's trying to help you for sure. And I think the other thing these medicines do is they help disconnect that fear center, which does sometimes regulate people's body. That's why they're operating in this like fight or flight mode and they're not even aware because their body's like trying so hard to fight some imaginary threat and their brain is like not really aware of it because their thinking part of their brain is on autopilot and the fear part of their brain's taking over. So psychedelics really help disconnect that. And when you disconnect that, you can actually like feel what your body is doing because it's not just running on this like fear autopilot. That's why they say five, 10 years, 20 years of therapy sometimes in one session because yeah. we can get to those blocks. Right? Yeah, we can get I, I would to say those. 20 years is maybe okay. excessive. But hey, I've had, I feel like I've had a lifetime of therapy yeah. on ayahuasca ones. Yeah, but the thing is, it's hard to control for that, right? Because we have to control for an individual with therapy, without therapy, Correct. and like how they're experiencing the medicine. But I think it's more impactful if you've been in therapy, you know yourself a little bit, you know what you're getting into um, before you kind of dive into these processes, right? I think like meditation is important. I think like breath work is important. They're like just good old talk therapy. Because yeah, a lot of times people don't, they don't say things out loud. And I'm like, your voice is so important. Mm. And the whole experience with psychedelics, it's nonverbal, right? And it's ineffable and that's a hallmark of it. But like we have a voice for a reason, right? And a lot of people are blocked here. So talk therapy is important to even just voice what might come up or what you're afraid of. So you have to integrate all of these things together, I think. When people are blocked, that you see they come in and they're blocked, mm-hmm. right? You know ketamine therapy will help. You know, you, you know the protocols that you hold them will help. What are some of the things people are doing in their lives 
when they're blocked that are self-harming, self-damaging that you see these days? A lot of it is like numbing, right? Or avoidance. Those are kind of the two big categories. Numbing like they, or avoidance. Yeah. Are they numbing themselves with like substances, with overworking, with these like kind of healthy things they think they should be doing, but they're just like bypassing what they should be feeling, right? Mm. And avoidance kind of goes into that category too, right? Are you just like always trying to go to yoga or always trying to like be there for everybody else, right? And you're avoiding your own whatever is going on inside. So I think those are big ones, right? Or people are sort of attracting the wrong people around them and getting this like false sense of community or security, but th those are not their people, right? And they're not the ones who are going to actually support them when things kind of start to crumble. Wow. I mean, some other things that come to mind too, when people are numbing, it can be, it can be, uh, you, you said overworking, mm -hmm. but it could be food. Mm -hmm. It could be sex. Mm -hmm. People go to porn, whatever that, um, it could be just TV, numbing out, eating. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like people can numb and escape and avoid in so yeah. many ways. Yeah, definitely. Video games. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. There's so many distractions nowadays, right? Oh my gosh. And the things that people do to avoid sitting with themselves yeah. like blows and my feeling mind. the, yes. I, you, I cannot tell you how many times in session, because I do breath work and meditation with people in session. And I always offer, right? I'm not going to like force it on somebody. But many times people are like, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, I'm going to sit here with you for like two minutes. And they're like, I don't want to. Like people are really scared to go inside. And so that's somebody I'd be like, you're not ready for ketamine. You, you just, won't even sit well, you here with just me. Spoke, you just spoke to something. I was working with someone just yesterday and we were in a group and he was coming up with feelings of just not wanting to live anymore. Mm. Okay. It was just like, I, but he didn't feel safe in the group to even share about it. Mm. So talk to us about the importance of feeling safe, the safety of the set in the setting. Yeah. Right. Um, Psychedelics is taking off right now. We know it's expanding through underground, above the ground, mm -hmm. um, but it's it's happening. Right? Yeah. We know that it's happening. Um, speak to the importance of uh, safety for someone to feel safe, for that nervous system to feel safe. Yeah, that's very important. And I think sometimes that gets missed again because a lot of people are very well intentioned and they just want to like bring medicine to people and sit yeah. with them and like think that's all yeah. there is. Yeah. But you have to have this understanding that that body has like been alive for a lot longer than the person who's thinking, oh, I'm just going to like come and sit with you and do whatever, right? So mm -hmm. the like you said, the body holds a score. And if your nervous system isn't ready, right, it's very overwhelming. It might shut down, it might lash out, it might dive deeper into a trauma than you're ready for. Uh -huh. And so creating safety is not just in the moment, but again, it's that psychological safety that you're setting up ahead of time. They're like, okay, what, what are you afraid of might come up, right? Or what are you hoping might come up, right? Or what are, what are your expectations? What are your, what's going to happen if your expectations don't get met, right? Because these are all parts of the psyche that we have to think about. Like you're always going to be upsetting somebody, so you better get to know everybody who's in your brain, right? Yes. And that's part of creating safety. Because yes. I think there's always going to be, there's a part of me that wants to get better, of course, but we all have self-sabotaging parts. And if that comes out in a psychedelic journey or after, like that can be really damaging. Yeah. And so a lot of it is just like, not trying to scare people, but just to let them know, like, there might be 90% of you that really wants to get better, but we really need to be kind and be aware of that 10% that's like the one that's causing all the problems, right? Yeah. So that's part of yeah. psychological safety. But then also like who who is doing the medicine with you, right? What's their training? Mm -hmm. Have they sat with the medicine before, right? And and what's their background and what are, what's their support, right? I think to do this work, you need to be in like supervision and consultation, right? You can't just be like a lone wolf out there like yeah, giving people medicine. And there are so many people out there charging for ceremonies mm -hmm. therapists regular people people who 
just find a way to maybe make some extra income and yeah. it'll sit with you. And I think that it's so important. You know, when we were first starting out on this, you know, uh, psychedelics has truly healed and expanded my life in so mm -hmm. many ways. But when I was looking at, I was being called to this industry because in the, you know, for the last 10 years, I've been in the treatment center, addiction, mental health, mm -hmm. you know, owning, you know, four different treatment centers mm -hmm. and everything from detox to outpatient, inpatient, even aftercare. And I saw that it wasn't working. Yeah. It was a revolving door. And I was in it for almost 10 years. I went to rehab when I was 17. So, and, and, and having been sober for almost two decades, I, I, I found that industry because it was purposeful for mm -hmm. me. But then when I got involved in that industry, I saw that it's a big racket, right? Yeah. I didn't know that the owners of the treatment centers who are going to all the golf courses and, you know, doing their thing. Well, it's a business. It's a business. Yeah. And, but it's the bottom line yeah. and, and nobody's getting better, yeah. right? And the people that are getting better are subscribing to a 60-year-old program designed by men in yeah. the 40s and it's masculine, over-masculine and it's get sober, you die. And like it's, there's a lot of codependency inside of that program. Yeah. And then when you want to try anything new, there's a lot of shame and, yeah. and like, oh, you're, you're not welcome. You know what I mean? Are it, you speaking like specifically to like AA? I'm speaking yeah. specifically to the recovery model, yeah. right? So, I mean, we saw, we, we, we kept track of the metrics. I mean, you're talking 93% relapse rate. And, you know, uh, but the insurance pays for it mm. and the parents don't have a lot of money. So they're just kind of yeah. sending their kids to anything and they're all kind of referring to each other. And we, on average, we saw, uh, people go to 10 to 15 different treatment centers yeah. over and over and over. That's how it was in psychiatry, like in residency. Like we would always just be like the hospital's kind of a revolving door. Or the people who are like in the, in the psyche are, and you'd be like, we've seen them before. Like you yeah. would just get to know the regulars. Yeah. And I was like, this is like so sad. Like this is not, like we're not giving them what they need. We're just like making sure they're safe for like a few days and like send them back out. And like it was, it was really broken. And I think that causes a lot of people to feel helpless, like on yeah. the medical side, yeah. which is then what makes these doctors that are like, I'm just going to write scripts and like let that take care of it because it's like heartbreaking to watch it's it. It's heartbreaking. And so I if you, lost if so you many feel like you people. don't have tools, like as a doctor, if you feel like you don't have tools to help, like what are you supposed to do? So a lot of doctors, I think, just shut down, right? Mm. And so I think even like bringing psychedelics to healthcare workers would be like a lot. There would be a huge ripple effect, right? because they would start realizing like they need to treat themselves better so they can treat their patients better. So that's a different way to, you know, from the top down, yeah, from the, the doctors, down. the therapists, yeah. the healthcare workers, and then the people instead yeah. of the, the bottom up exactly. approach. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause right now they're all burned out and all can't provide out. the care that they need. Yeah. Right. And yeah, people like me kind of escape the system, but we're far yeah. and few. So yeah, I escaped that system. I was so, so kind of telling on myself, you know, having, you know, some success in my life mm -hmm. as a as a business owner but seeing how people weren't getting better mm -hmm. started weighing on my heart yeah and i think that the cam the straw that broke the camel's back was when a medical doctor and an entrepreneur who owned many treatment centers came and approached me and they said um they said, hey, we have this new shot. Mm. We get a thousand bucks for every time we- Is it Vivitrol? Something like, yeah, yeah Vivitrol. We get a thousand dollars for every time we give someone the prick and then they can't use drugs for 30 days. And like, it might save a life, yeah. but, but then it, it really didn't. People mm. were using the shot, but they weren't healing yeah. the underlying. And so they would still use heroin and get sick. And yeah. like, it just wasn't working. But the first thought was, hey, we can make all this money. So much money, yeah. And that's the industry, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, it's... I mean, there's a real risk of that happening with psychedelics for sure. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah. the way that psilocybin is going to get patented and all these yeah. companies. I mean, it's it's and sad to say, I think it's inevitable, but I think there's enough people who aren't doing it that way that will help balance the system out. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we live in like a capitalist society. What do we expect? If there's something that's profitable, people are going to profit off of it. I and feel- if there's something valuable, there's like anything that's valuable, there's an opportunity for corruption to be alongside it. But I'm going to say yes and this. I actually believe psychedelics has a way to get into someone's heart and clean out all of that capitalistic, it did for me. I believe, and I've seen it in others. I believe an ayahuasca journey, a boga journey, some of these powerful medicines Mm -hmm. that we know can bring someone into such a place of reverence and respect and love for life and real healing. And I think I think that's what psychedelics has the power to do. I think so too. I don't know what the time frame for that I is. I don't know right? either. It's like I don't know what clock we're trying to race against, but like again, these companies are doing things at the same time that the medical system's trying to regulate things. And then there's a lot of people out here just like you said, doing things underground. So it's like what's gonna rise first type of thing. Um, and yeah, I think if lots of CEOs and world leaders would take some psychedelics, sure. But going back to what I said before, we can't like force it on them. They have to we come. Can't. They have to come to it, right? And so if they're not being called, right, that's not for us to understand why or why not. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, it, and I kind of walked into this a little bit naive. I did not. Uh, same, similar to you. Like, oh, I, I, what's go? What, yeah. Let's do it. You know, and it just happened to bring me into every. Uh, nook and cranny of my pain and soul and I had to face everything because when you're you know for anyone who's listening when you're on ayahuasca sometimes the medicine shows you things that you haven't been willing to look at and the brain has guarded and so it goes into those closets and I had and it it would just keep coming until you face it till I I'll say speak for myself until I faced it Mm -hmm. and erased it (laughs) kind of thing like I had to go through the process the healing the grieving I had to look at death I had to look at the relationship with my mother my father my my siblings like it had Mm -hmm. me to look at these things that I just wasn't willing to look at relationship with myself yeah people pleasing or all these issues that I was doing and and it can it just amazing transformation but also I think helps you like strip away these concepts and ideas you have of yourself because I remember like researching a little bit about it, but I knew I didn't want to learn too much about it because I didn't want it to like skew my... So I was, of course, reading like, what is this doing medically? Oh, it's like an MAOI inhibitor and DMT. And I was like, oh, this makes sense. And and I remember like as it was working, I was like trying so hard to like hold on to my thoughts of like, mm-hmm. okay, this is happening now and this is what's doing. And then of course you can't, you just have to like surrender. And then it just was so, I was like laughing at myself. I was like, how funny that I think I'm like a doctor who's going to understand this. Like, who am I to think? You're I'm already like, I'm going to understand Yeah, exactly. And I just like let that go. And it was so fascinating. How hard was for you to let that go? I mean, I think grandmother was like, you're going to let this <laughs> go. So go. here you go. Um, so it actually, it wasn't that hard, okay. I think. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think all these like names and roles we wear, they serve a purpose. But at the end of the day, like, I know I'm not those things, right? It's like, hard. It's hard to let go of wanting to figure things out. Yeah, you know, it's so that's, much. It's so much easier to just like let it unfold and, and accept what's happening, right? And be curious. I always tell people like it's. It behooves you to be curious because curiosity puts your brain like in an open, learning, receptive yeah. state and activates yeah. parasympathetic. Like that's exciting, yeah. right? But you can easily turn that into fear, right? Like yeah. fear and curiosity, yeah. fear and excitement. They're the same sides of the coin. And so you can be afraid of something if you don't know what's going to happen, or you can be afraid of, yeah, what's tomorrow going to bring, or you can just be curious, right? And that totally shifts the way your body responds. I'm glad we're talking about this because, you know, for for some of the listeners, viewers that are like, gosh, what they haven't sat yet, mm-hmm. right? And what can happen on a journey, on a ceremony, 
in a therapy session mm-hmm. with medicine. Yeah, the medicine can bring you to places almost like an, it can induce a spiritual awakening. It can induce healing, right? So one, I would say, you have to be ready, mm-hmm. like you said. You have to be ready to heal. Like if someone's not ready to heal, like, ah, I'm going out. You know, okay, they're on their way down maybe, yeah. right? Whatever, or their way up. Who knows? But, but I would say caveat to that is ready to heal, but aware that there are going to be parts of you that will not, that are going to fight, that Correct. are going to resist. There are going to, but like, yeah, block. You have, you have to welcome all of that in. I was going to say a few things that I've learned along my way, and maybe you have some of these tools too, is when I'm in a journey, my breath is one of my most important allies. Mm-hmm. Just taking a deep breath. If something is coming up mm-hmm. and it might be painful to look at, breathe. Mm-hmm. And then there's, there's four words that I usually say, and it stands for STAR. Oh. Surrender, mm-hmm. trust, allow, and receive. I like that. And if I just surrender, and if I trust, and then if I allow, and then I receive. Yeah. Whatever needs to come through will come through. And my brain will do the healing. My yeah. body will do the healing. Yeah. And that I don't have to put up those resistors. Because I've been in those journeys where I fight it and what resists persists. Right. Yeah. So anyone listening that, you know, it, it, what do you find that's helpful when someone's in a journey? Yeah, I think all those things apply. And I think being open and, and accepting and, again, like moving with whatever is happening instead of feeling like stuck and like you can't you can't right and wherever there's that resistance and friction like that's what causes the distress and so i you know i kind of tell people like if if something is happening in the journey just like trust it and go with it like whatever is happening was meant to happen right whatever you're seeing you're supposed to see whatever you're feeling you're supposed to feel and so like trust that that's the way it is supposed to be and that if you're putting up resistance to it like you're kind of blocking your own path in a way um i don't have a fancy acronym like that but i like that a lot I tend to let people have their own process because I think, again, speaking to the medical model, it's so interventionist Mm -hmm. that I think allowing people to unfold into their own healing is quite powerful. And it it creates such a different dynamic when you like know there's somebody there who's, I mean, ideally the hierarchy is like obliterated, right? Like I'm sitting on the ground, they're sitting, they're taking medicine. And I think it's very powerful to know that somebody is there that could intervene, but isn't because they are trusting you to have your own process. So I almost find that more powerful than any like intervention I can do. Um, And if people are like seeking reassurance or seeking safety or need touch or something, right? Again, it's like so taboo in psychiatry. Obviously I'll do something, but really Mm. it's, it's simple. Like it's breath and it's like presence and that a lot of people lack, right? They going through something scary is easier if you know you're safe because somebody is there watching and witnessing and present if you need them. So it's that dynamic that's very hard to like create and explain to people, but that's also what people have like missed a lot of their lives, right? Mm. The thing that was hard for them in their past, yeah, it may have been bad, but like trauma is trauma because there's nobody there afterwards to like witness it, to reassure you, to help you feel safe, right? Like PTSD doesn't happen in the moment. It happens like in the week after. Yeah, it does. So, so just being a witness and being present for people, like that's, that's my biggest intervention, right? And again, mm. all the prep work, they know that I know them and that I trust them and that allows them to trust themselves and go deeper. I think that's so powerful that you can allow them to heal themselves and be in their own process. And if they ask for a hand, you know, can you mm-hmm. hold my hand? Are you there? Like you're there, yeah. but you're trusting, you're present, you're holding the space. Yeah. One of the things, tell us about space holding because I don't, I don't think this is talked about enough mm-hmm. because... You know, typically in the old medical model, the doctors are there to fix the person, Mm -hmm. fix the person, right? And then 
what I've learned in this field is people have been holding space for me. Like mm-hmm. I've gone on therapy sessions, ceremonies, where they're just holding space for me because mm-hmm. they've been where I'm at. Yeah. They've processed what I've processed. Yeah. Talk to us about like the power of just, you know, space holding. Yeah, I mean, I think to speak to what I was saying earlier, that having somebody witness like your process is like invaluable, right? And I think when you're thinking about space and is it just you and the other person? Is it a community you're in? Like that has a different energy to it, right? Um, But I think, yeah, just to be somebody listening to you and like really listening versus like listening to like hear something that they can address. Or they're in their journey and they're on their phone or like taking notes. They're with you. Right, exactly. It's different, right? And people can like pick up on that They can feel that. Yeah. I was in a ketamine journey once at a different clinic and I, it was my first time ever doing ketamine Mm -hmm. and it was the IV. Mm. And so I kind of a little bit of a beeping noise, like it just felt like a hospital. And I knew when we were building within, I did not want it to feel like that. Right. Which is why we do the intermuscular. So people can move and have, cause I kind of would move and I'd have these wires bunched up and, and then I was kind of going out and I looked at the woman there who was an EMT and I said, have you ever done this? She's like, Oh no, I don't, I don't sit with ketamine. Oh God. (laughs) And so it's like, okay. And, and so like, I kind of was going in, but I could hear her with her phone during the thing. I could hear the phone. She just wasn't there, but she was there legally. She had to be there, I guess. Um, and I had a traumatic experience. I thought I was in the hospital, like dying, like as a, like a, I really believe that I believe all experiences lead me to something good. That's just the story I tell myself, but it wasn't like a, a, positive experience for me I ended up ripping this thing out of my arm oh. it was just tough right yeah um and that's I, not ideal that's not really it's not ideal things to go and, down. and, and yeah. so yeah uh, so do you use at, at your practice um are you using intermuscular or using yeah i do mostly lozenge? intramuscular and lozenges yeah. and yeah, yeah i think IV is kind of messy i mean there's a time and a place for IV. i think if there's sure. somebody like medically complicated and yeah you heavily to, like, medically things mm-hmm. like that that makes sense and the ability to turn it on and off is really helpful yeah. Um, but I think intramuscular is just a smoother, cleaner process. Mm-hmm. But I do, I like oral. I think there's something special about like taking the medicine and like having it slowly come on. It, and yeah. people have different experiences with them both. So I try to get people, whatever, whenever they're doing a series with me, to try both. Yeah. Just to have a different experience. Um, but yeah, and then... I will say the only time I'm on my phone I, uh, during um, a session is sometimes I will change the music just yeah. to kind of read the room. Yeah, and I, like, you love, read the room. Yeah, I love playing DJ. And so I'm like, oh, I feel like this is going to be a good song. Or, or sometimes they'll say something. Like one time this guy was very like dancey and he was talking about this wedding he went to in Lebanon. So I just like put on some Middle Eastern music. It was great. And so like that type of stuff, like it's engaging in a different way. Right. And he's still like in his process, but I don't know. So that type of stuff, I think it makes it kind of more interesting as somebody who's holding space, but like in a different way. I love playing DJ during ceremonies and tell us the importance of music with psychedelic therapy. Yeah, why really why has it been, why is the playlist and music and frequency and sound so important? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few different theories, um, but like ketamine without music is very strange. It's like, you're just in this like barren landscape because music, I mean, if you think about it, music is resonating. There's frequency to it, right? Like everything in our brain is working on brain waves and electricity. So you can resonate with certain vibra- vibrations, right? So I think music has that really powerful impact, but the music itself ends up being almost like another sense you can like ride, right? Because everything in ketamine space is kind of like you have synesthesia to an extent, right? Mm -hmm. Like sounds and voices and 
colors and touch, like everything feels strange. So music just becomes like interwoven in this different journey, right? Which is why like somebody on their phone or talking is going to be distracting and maybe not adding to your experience, Mm -hmm. but like a really beautiful like crescendo or something will be like so magical. And people are always, no matter what I play, people are like, that was the most amazing music. And I'm like, and I tell them, I'm like, your brain did that. That wasn't the music. I was like, that's your brain with the music, like creating something really beautiful. So it's just another like fun thing to play with in session, but it is really important because there's also sort of like the arc of the experience you want to help create for them. My last journey uh, here at the Within Center actually I came in, I'm like, here's my playlist. Cause I had already listened to it in another journey. And I was like, I want to do with this playlist. And the guide, Ashley was like, well, I had a playlist picked out for you that mm. felt, she's like, I had like a, a real feeling yeah. about this playlist. And I'm like, so I had my mind, my expectations. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to trust yeah. the process. And she gives me this tribal playlist. And it was the most tribal I've ever sat oh. with drumming. And, yeah. and it was the most profound experience yeah. it yeah, took I me don't a let whole people bring a playlist either yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> part of, like you have to let go of control i had to let go yeah. i had to let go yeah well this is so amazing i could i could ask honestly a hundred more questions know, we okay we could forever. sit here and talk yeah. and i would actually do that if you didn't have many clients to go yeah, see today exactly. but yeah. i want to know and i'm and i'm sure other people want to know um and people have asked me like how do i sit with jazz deep tell us about your i mean you're doing something new it's really never really been done as uh, creating these ketamine retreats, mm-hmm. these therapy retreats. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about this and, and how people can can find this. Yeah. So originally when I was going through my training, like the way I was trained, most clinicians are trained is in a group. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is so much more powerful, I think, than sitting individually. And it's not like it's a totally new concept, right? Like medicine has been done in groups, like ayahuasca is done in mm-hmm. groups, right? All these plant medicines around the world, they're, they're always done in community and like with ceremony. So it's like, well, why can't we do this with ketamine? Like this makes sense. We should try this. Um, and yeah, there's just such a different level of like healing that happens when you're in relation to other people. And so it's like you almost amplify the experience for everybody because while everybody's having their individual experience, you feel so much more connected and connection is such a big part of healing Mm. that it's kind of built in into these retreats. And, you know, sometimes people are kind of nervous or they're like, Oh, I don't want to like, what if I'm loud? I'm like, great. That person will be loud too. Like everybody can be loud together. Everybody can be quiet together. And so we've had a lot of different experiences. Like we've had a group that was super quiet and mellow and we've had a group where everybody was like flailing and doing their own thing. And so it's, it's just, it's a really powerful way to, to experience the medicine. And with all the same prep and integration, you just do it with a group. So you Mm. end up feeling a lot more connected to the people you're sitting Mm. with too. So yeah, I offer those. I work with like really great therapists in the community who are all very well trained. Um, and we like host these really small groups and they're, we do it for a day. I actually host them here most of the time. Oh wow, yeah. yes, that's right. Um, and yeah, it's a beautiful day. They come in, we like talk, we meditate, mm. they take medicine. We have like a lot of like art and integration after and it's wow. just it's like such a beautiful space and people are always like, I don't want to leave. Like this is such a nice it container. It sounds yummy. It it's, just sounds it's so, it's, so delicious. It's so lovely. Um, and then, yeah, we, we do groups before and after so that they have that continuity. Um, but yeah, that's, that's like one of my favorite ways to like offer the medicine. And then I obviously do like individual sessions with people and sometimes people come, you know, just for like a one-off, they want to experience it or they have something they're kind of working on, but they're like relatively okay. Or they're coming in because yeah, they have a lot of trauma or a lot of anxiety or depression. And we're doing like a series of four to six, um, 
So for anyone who's out there looking, because there's so many, you can Google and just mm -hmm. find retreats in Peru, at Colombia, in the Amazon. Uh, and then you have people that get introduced to therapists on the underground. Yeah. Here, people can come and have uh, a doctor mm -hmm. uh, in a safe set and setting with other people who are really ready, with therapists who are trained. I mean, and have such a safe container. Yeah, what you've that. created is like amazing. It's like the ideal, I think. I'm not talking about that, what you created. Oh, well, I'm saying, <laughs> well, I, think what, I think what you've like created it. is also like... Just a reflection. Yeah. Yeah. Because the you. funny thing, I just realized, we kind of do almost the same things. Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're helping people, uh, you know, we do ketamine retreats, where like, but I don't see you as competition. Yeah. It's just because I don't live that way anymore. Yeah. I see us as healers, activators. We're on our own path of healing and activating. And then we're holding others because collectively we're healing together. Yeah. That's what I see it as. But in my old way, I would have been like, oh, wait, another person yeah. doing ketamine retreats? Like, heck yeah. I think there's still people who think that way. I though. know. And I just stay away from those people. Yeah. But maybe they need an ayahuasca journey. Well, maybe. Or they'll come to it on their own. <laughs> on their right? own. All yeah. right. I want to just bring them there. Yeah. I wish, right? <laughs> We can maybe create a, yeah. a container for the yeah. healers. Maybe or... we get a big van, like an ayahuasca <laughs> van, and we just throw people in and bring them to the jungle. I don't think Aya would I got a, that, I got a but... couple of people in mind. Yeah. But that's the thing, right? I think the other thing medicine teaches you is like, you can't save the world. You no, just have to I do know. it in your own know, corner. Know, and I like, know. that's... I was joking. Yeah. No, but I think a lot of people, once this is kind of a dark side of the medicine is like once they take it they feel like they need to like proselytize and be like oh my gosh everybody and it's like no 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 yeah you've now activated something in like your shadow that you need to work That's on and right. some people don't realize that yeah. and like, again it might be good intentioned or it might be coming from this other place they need to understand like your experience is your experience people will have their experience when they have it like you can't force people to wake up they'll wake up when they wake up I think that's the mic drop <laughs> and I think we end with that tell us where people can find you so I'm located in Austin. Um, my website's drsanduintegrativepsychiatry.com. Mm. And a lot of people just know me. If you, if you ask the psychedelic therapist in town, they'll probably yep. give you my name and yep. refer you to me. So I kind of operate on the down low, but I yeah, like that. But you can find her. Yeah, you can find me. On Google as well. Yeah, on Google. I pop up. It's a pleasure, an honor, and a privilege to have you here. Yes. Thank you, David, so Thank much. You I so appreciate much. you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the Going Within podcast. The Going Within podcast is sponsored by Within Center. Within is a ceremonial psychedelic-assisted wellness center in the heart of Austin, Texas. Discover more about our transformative practices at within.center. If you enjoyed this episode, we kindly invite you to follow us and share your thoughts with a review. Going Within is hosted by David Naylor, production led by Patrick Stanger, and filming and production by Rare Media. Please note the statements made on Going Within have not undergone evaluation by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Within, we strongly recommend consulting your health care provider for personalized guidance on the diagnosis and treatment of any disease or condition.